1: I think maybe the one thing that does feel more developed now in me is I can recognize the resistance. And it doesn't mean that I always push past it, but I can feel it and I kind of know what it feels like in me and it is helpful because it does kind of indicate something's bubbling and to wait through it. And I've paced and I've cried, you know, all the things of just like, I cannot stand to do this work. And then at the end of this, whatever, whatever little tantrum I have, it can be so productive. It really feels like a very smooth writing experience after that.
0: You are listening to Change Lab Conversations on Transformation and Creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, President of Art Center College of Design. For novelist Amy Bender, Magic is not a limited resource, nor is it something to be feared, coveted, mistrusted, or monetized. In her view, rather, magic is an everyday occurrence woven into the fabric of our lives, captured in fleeting moments of transcendence all too often overlooked. No wonderment, however small, seems to escape Amy's notice. And as her readers can attest, her comfort with uncanny occurrences can be found throughout her celebrated novels and essays. Whether she's writing about a child's ability to taste a parent's depression in her best-selling novel, The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake, or a young woman confounded by inanimate objects that spring to life, In the butterfly lampshade, Amy's work gives voice and validity to the things we know and feel but can't explain. We share an interest in exploring the unknown and making sense of it in our writing. For me, it's best summed up in the subtitle of my book, from spaces of uncertainty to creative discovery, whereas Amy describes her connection to this terra incognita as a way of acknowledging the presence of ghosts and making room for a different kind of thinking. Amy is the rare artist whose warmth and gregariousness match her vast talents. And as you'll soon hear, this conversation was no exception. As she sought to illuminate the mysterious and sometimes tortured nature of the writing process, she regularly invoked her students with deep affection. So it should come as no surprise that her creative writing classes at USC are among the most popular in the program. Amy and I also discussed the way creativity provides a lab for experimenting with uncertainty and how, to paraphrase Bob Dylan, writing on a good day can feel like dipping a cup into the river of ideas and delighting at the surprises discovered within it. Please enjoy my conversation with Amy Bender. Hey Amy.
1: Hey, Lauren.
0: I'm going to sort of take you back in time a little bit. I found this amazing essay that you wrote in 2014 for the New York Times on Goodnight Moon. Mm. And um, I would love to invite you to reflect on what's so astonishing to you about that book, which is insights and astonishment that I didn't have before I read your essay. And only because I think it crystallizes So many things that I would love to address today, and we'd love to hear you talk about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That essay came out of, I had new infant twins, and I was reading them Goodnight Moon, and I'd never read it before, and I'm pretty well-versed in children's lit, but for some reason had had actually never cracked open Goodnight Moon. And I think there is this sort of starvation in parenthood for intellectual stimulation (laughs) like that there's the glory of child development that you're observing and also just the, the very primal experience of taking care of such basic needs. And so it was sort of a miraculous moment where I could feel my literary mind wake up while reading it for the first time. And then after subsequent many, many readings to really kind of analyze what I thought Margaret Wise Brown did so beautifully about writing and the permission that she was giving writers. And that there are just a couple ways that she kind of subverts the system that she sets up. That my assumption had been it was just about saying goodnight to everything in the room, but they're particularly the goodnight nobody. There's this incredible sort of surrealist break in the system of objects and these very tangible items to the goodnight nobody, which is such a shock and somehow moving, like there's an emotional stretch. In reading her other picture books and children's stories, she does this over and over again, where she kind of makes a leap into something a little deeper, a little wider. So there's the goodnight nobody, and then there's the- And there's a goodnight
0: mush, right?
1: Yes, yes, totally. So everything gets the sort of dignity of the good night, which feels very attuned to childhood's awareness of everything. Mm -hmm. And then there's even the absences, the nobody. And then there's also this, it sort of ends, you would think it would end on a certain note, but then she moves outward. You can feel the little bunny drifting off to sleep and it's the good night noises everywhere being the end, which is a closing of the eyes. Like it's just so beautiful how she... Uh, moves us into sleepiness with these these elegant maneuvers, and I guess for me it just felt shocking that so much art was happening in this list of good nights, and that she both set up a pattern and then she undid the pattern at the same time. And and right. I really believe right. that's why it's a classic. I mean, I think had she just continued to the pattern, it would it would not have held its place in the canon of children's literature as it does. And when I wrote that article, like the comments are are mostly people just saying how much it has meant to them and how they read it to their children, or they remember having it read to them, or they would shout it to each other from different rooms of the household.
0: Well, I I just loved it. I loved having the moment to reengage with that book again, as my youngest child is looking to turn 30 this year. So it's been a while. And (laughs) Because all things seem to be in a kind of make-to-know world for me right now, Mm -hmm. it just made me think about all kinds of interesting things. That It was almost like the good nighting, which, yeah, does take you to a place of sleep, but it's also an activation in a really interesting way, right? Mm. It's a kind of making. Right. Right? How things kind of emerge. You do a description, but then in your engagement and in your making, as you point out, things come up that you didn't acknowledge. You discover as you go, right? Yeah,
1: And it has that feeling of spontaneity, of opening, like a kind of opening view, a widening Mm -hmm. of the lens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: And for you too, which we'll get into hopefully later, what it means to engage with objects that are around you and how they take on a certain kind of life. That might not be the right word. They take on a certain kind of vibrancy because of the engagement itself. Yeah, right? exactly. So the, it's a good transition because I have this interest in possibility that comes from entering uncertainty and the unknown and how making in uncertainty, you know, takes us somewhere, often to very unexpected places. And I wonder if I could ask you just to reflect on that and what, what it means to you in your process.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, I think similarly, it feels huge and maybe just central to the whole act of making anything is this engagement with uncertainty and in that way, too. When I teach and I think about the act of writing, I know some writers will worry if their students aren't publishing, for example. And um, I think I've wondered kind of ethically to myself, how do I feel about that? And then it really comes down to this, which is that the act of engaging with uncertainty on the page is so important. And it becomes a way to then maybe have a lab for the concept of engaging in uncertainty, which we're faced with all the time in our lives. So how great to have this sort of more contained and controlled space in which to wrangle and wrestle with this experience of what's coming next, Mm -hmm. what's going to bubble out of me, what's going to land on the page. For me, it's crucial that it's writing because no one has to see it. So there can be this sort of true experimentation without embarrassment, you know, and unlike a performer where I think they have to put it out amongst people, (laughs) you know, and that's different. But I think that the uncertainty is... I guess the way I often talk about it or think about it is the unconscious, which means that you really are stepping into something that's out of your awareness, but it's inside of you. And so what is that thing? and, And isn't that where resonance comes from?
0: And is confronting that uncertainty, looking at it, making a decision to go there, is it frightening for you? Would you describe it as that? Or did it used to be frightening and maybe not so much anymore?
1: I think it's still frightening, yeah. I mean, I think it definitely used to be. And I have these very strict rules around how long I'm going to write. And those rules are built very much uh, based on fear, because I want to be able to get out, you know, I want an exit. And so I know when I'm going to stop. And so then I can kind of stay a little bit longer, which feels very kind of related to the way I think of the frame of the therapy hour and like, you know, all these things about what are these different frames that we create so that we can tap into the monstrousness. But still... There's a lot of circling and a lot of hedging and a lot of not going there. And in fact, the thing that I find really interesting is it's when I'm less aware and when I'm slightly less focused that I'm more likely to write something that when I look at it the next day, I see something has happened that was a real risk, Mm -hmm. but the risk didn't happen when I sat down and said, time to take a risk, you know, like those moments end up filling with a self-consciousness, it has to be the moments where I really, truly catch myself by surprise by being mildly distracted by a dot on the wall, and then something gets written that then when I look at later, I can see that the risk got taken.
0: So interesting, and it echoes what you said to me again when we talked about this a few years ago, and the artist Anne Hamilton says that when somehow intention is subverted, something else opens up. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. And that intention, I now believe more than ever, that the intention needs to be to sit down and create a way to sit down and do the work. That's the really only intention. And that when there's intention about the work, about the content of what the work will look like and be, that's when it messes everything up. Like we can't really yeah. know. That's the uncertainty. The uncertainty's got to run the day. Good night, nobody. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it's Amy Tan who says if you focus on what it's about, it becomes about aboutness. Love that. Amazing. So, just because I think the listeners would appreciate it, if you wouldn't mind telling the story of, I guess it was just the first day of writing Lemon Cake where you actually tied yourself to it chair or thought about tying yourself to a chair in order to ensure that these rules were implemented that you're talking about? It's
1: so funny too, Lauren, because this story, it actually was the very first time I started a writing sort of regimen, which was to write at that time for an hour and a half. I was starting grad school, so it was way before lemon cake. But it's true that so the first time I decided I'm going to write for a set amount of time and this is going to be the law of the land. And that's the one intention that I am going to set and keep and that I was worried that I would break the law. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I tied myself with a scarf to the foot of the chair and it was no problem. Like I wasn't going to, you know, like I didn't have to do it beyond that first day, but it was a gesture toward myself, towards how seriously I wanted to take this, that I had to at least untie the scarf if I, you know, found myself wanting to bail.
0: Right. Says the woman who wrote the butterfly lampshade and whose character... Has herself locked in a right. room. That's kind of an interesting parallel to actually that I hadn't thought of it. You
1: know. Yeah, well, I think I'm just so yeah. obsessed with this idea of what are the, what are the self-imposed limits? What are the useful limits? What are the limits that right. become a problem? And what are the limits that actually are incredibly liberating? How do we find the line between them? Right.
0: One of the ways in which I have found such fascination with this idea of keeping you know, the self-imposed limit and tying yourself to the chair is that it, it felt to me that it ensured an entry point into uncertainty, right? That it opened up the possibility for that to happen. Other artists and designers have talked about they have a question, an urge, a notion of something that they need to get into it. But for you, it was almost like a physical declaration.
1: Right. And it really wasn't an idea, like it really was, and it still is kind of pushing aside this about of aboutness, this idea of ideas, which is to really be like, you You sit down blank and it's terrible and uncomfortable. Yeah. And this is like, I go to yeah. this Adam Phillips article on being bored and this idea of boredom as a kind of yeah. way station. And so like, how do you cultivate that space? Because ideas bubble up from there, but they're not the ideas that seemed good. They're the ideas that surprise. They really are coming from the place of uncertainty into further uncertainty. You know, it's not like it opens into certainty at all. It goes into greater mysteries and unknowns, but they're tangible, they're to be explored.
0: And this amazing Adam Phillips, whose work is so relevant to both of us, I mean, that idea of psychoanalysis about going into uncertainty and finding and discovering through the making that is that process, that speaking, I mean, I think he says at one point, the amazing thing is that there is something to say, (laughs) you know, and that you find it that way. But also, this whole notion of boredom, which maybe we should take a moment to explore Mm. a little bit more and what he says about that. And Roseanne Summerson, who's a a wonderful artist and former president of RISD, talks about how she actually created an exercise to ensure that her students would be bored. Right. Right. And so that they couldn't leave that spot like you, like there was a physical imposition, and she made this really interesting point. He said, the body naturally wants to run when you're coming to something that is tough or difficult or challenging, right? But if you discipline yourself not to move that and to stay with it, then some, some discovery can happen.
1: I mean, exactly. It's exactly that. And I love that quote about the desire to run because I think that's maybe, when you ask the question about the fear, I think maybe the one thing that does feel more developed now in me is I can recognize the resistance. And it doesn't mean that I always... Push past it but I can feel it and I kind of know what it what it feels like in me and and it is helpful because it does kind of indicate something's bubbling and to wait through it and I've paced and I've cried you know all the things of just like I cannot stand to do this work and then at the end of this whatever, whatever little tantrum I have it can be so productive like it really feels like a very smooth writing experience after that tumult. It's hard to grab those moments. I think they are the moments that make the work worthwhile and somehow they still are frightening in some way, like there's just a bit of a wall.
0: So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, as you're engaging in this time period, and as Tom Stern says, moving words around on a page and trying to, and going through your making process, when something does surface or come to you, do you experience it as a surprise? Do you experience it as a recognition? Or are those, or neither of those?
1: I think more of a surprise. There's more of a surprise. There's a feeling like it's, It's of me, but not of me. There's something separate. I mean, I think Bob Dylan comes to mind because I think he talks about that feeling like you're dipping your cup in a river when he was writing Mm -hmm. a song. Just like that there's some connection to to this, whatever you want to call it, this sort of creative impulse. And so, yes, it's coming from me, but I've stepped aside for the moment and I'm able to experience it as a surprise. And that's such a pleasure. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's... The main pleasure in a certain way is that feeling of what is this thing I just made that I'm pleased with and how do I work with it? And it seems to be working and I didn't make it work and I didn't plan it. I guess that for me, it feels like there's there's certain themes I can see in my work and I can see in others work, like when you read, you know, a certain like if I read Murakami over and over, I can see the certain themes that repeat over and over and the certain images that come up again and again. And I don't care because they feel like they're clearly fresh still to him enough that he's still deep diving into them, even if it's the 50th cat. But I feel like the reason it's surprised for me is it just feels like, you know, I don't know all the nooks and crannies of my own self. And I know myself pretty well, like I really have done a fair bit of work exploring all the nooks and crannies. And it's not like the whole room is, you know, lit by sunshine. It's just not. And so maybe I'm surprised and I will recognize certain things and have that sort of nod of awareness. But I think I guess I do sort of believe in our in our kind of infinite strangeness that we we have our things that we're obsessed by that will resurface again and again, but They show up in new ways, and those new ways, that's how you find out. So for me, there might be recognition sometimes, but I would say there's quite a bit more surprise in that. That's when the thing hits the light and the air.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: It's funny that you mentioned uh, Murakami, because we talked about him at one point, and it's something that has stayed with me that you said that is so strong, is the kind of emotional honesty that comes to his writing that allows... That the reader, and you were just alluding to this, the reader intuitively knows it, which is why it stays fresh, mm. right? Contrasted with a writer who can move things around mechanically with great skill, but doesn't necessarily find that kind of honesty or truth in a certain level, right. a certain way. And that as we read and as we're engaged in the making of reading, we are responding to that honesty and to maybe the surprise, the, uh, the surprise energy that's still embedded in those words.
1: Right. And it's, it's such an argument for not worrying. If you find yourself circling the same material, if it's of interest to the writer, there is something still submerged in darkness about it in a very productive way. Right. So it's like, mm-hmm. I think if a writer is genuinely engaged with material, it will, yes, continue to have that sort of honesty of interest. And that, frost quote i think of a lot when i'm teaching and also for my own writing of no surprise for the writer no surprise for the reader or you know that there's this mirroring that the page or the art or whatever it is becomes this conversation between the viewer and the maker or the reader and the writer whatever it is that if that move to uncertainty is genuine and maybe that's what i take from what you mean by honesty too right if it's a genuine unknown then that transfers to a reader, and we d- it doesn't feel mm-hmm. contrived. We mm-hmm. were talking in class about Louise Erdrich's story, "The Red Convertible," and students we were sort of tracking some of the symbolism in it, and noticing like parts where like a writer will foreshadow without realizing she has a part where there's like a beer can floating in a river that fills up with water and sinks. And I hadn't read the story many times and had never noticed this particular image, but it foreshadows something that happens to a character paragraphs later. And she's not there to interrogate and say, you know, did you put this image in here as a conscious foreshadowing? But I would certainly bet a fair bit of money that she didn't. She was working with the objects that she had in the story, and she herself hadn't quite woken up to what had, was going to happen to one of the characters. And later you can look back and it because of that, it doesn't feel contrived and has this sort of beautiful feeling of steps and preparation but it doesn't have that mechanical piece that you're talking about, which at this point, I think I feel so impatient with that feeling of, oh, the writer or the whoever is setting me up for a plot move. I just have no patience for it. There's too much of it. And it, it's like all my interest kind of washes away when I feel that happening.
0: Yeah. And this is such a, a wonderful and in its way moving point about what's exciting what's impactful, what's compelling for us is not so much this somehow manifesting some already understood vision or idea, but creating the conditions for discovery. And that's really what our work is, right? However we do that, Yeah. and however we allow for that. And improvisation is such a wonderful way to talk about that too, right? Because Improvisation can't come from anywhere. It doesn't come out of nothing. It comes from some sort of frame that's established.
1: Right, exactly. And within that,
0: there is movement, and there is breezes blowing, and there is all kinds of things that creates a space for that to happen. It's a condition for discovery. You've created circumstance for discovery.
1: And that, and I, you know, I find myself quoting the, I guess, the British psychoanalytic teams a lot, but to bring in Winnicott, (laughs) he has this quote about happiness that I love. And this is paraphrasing, but it's something about this idea that we feel happy when we feel like we have a sense of spontaneity in our choices, that we can sort of feel an opening in our lives. So this is where I feel still like all this, it's all connected, like if the making is a lab for the way of thinking about how can we be open to things in the world and how can we have a sense of spontaneity and discovery inside a moment so that something catches us by surprise so we can feel a freshness in our lives you know, thinking of the pandemic, like there's so much routine and rote sort of like getting by in these smaller spheres that we've all been living for a year plus and thinking of like, what are the openings in that? And how does the act of making something then become this way? Like when Winnicott's talking about it, he's talking about it with life. And I love that too. Like I love thinking about these parallels. And so when we're improving our lives all the time. So all of those always always yeah, Yeah, so, but how do we kind of harness that value really and say you know i've just been thinking about that a lot lately like what are what are all the moments i'm missing i'm missing them all the time all the time moments that Mm -hmm. can be something different than and more interesting than what they are
0: So Amy, one of the topics I would love to revisit with you that we talked about when we met about the book had to do with revision. And I'm interested in that and what your revision process is, only because I think it, it can be misleading how one thinks of that, because there's such a huge element of uncertainty with revision, even though we have something to work with in a very different way. And wondered if you could reflect a little bit on your sense of What the revising process is, if that's even the right word, right? Great, because was there a vision in the first place that now you're revising?
1: Great Great. point. Yeah. So what is being re? Yeah. Well, that's. I find that very helpful actually, because it right, it isn't coming from an initial vision when I when I'm working. I guess. I mean, I do think. People probably have different relationships to the pleasure of generating something out of nothing versus the pleasure of working with the thing that's already there. And for me, it's far better once I have some words on the page to begin to shape them and play with them. I just feel useful in a way that I don't when I'm staring at a blank page. But I suppose it's, again, there's sort of a different level of discovery. And I think of this with screenwriters that I've talked to where they're like, yes, I know the beat at the end of the scene, but I don't know exactly what someone's going to say as they get to this beat so that they were like, that's where the creative process happens there. I've mapped out and outlined this particular movement, but like, Who's going to say what, when, and what are they going to do with the coffee maker? And like, how's that going to play in? And for me, I think it's so if something's laid out, then it is something about looking around, seeing what's in the room, I guess. And maybe this is this is a more sort of tangible way to answer your question, but it goes back to the foreshadowing of Erdrich and the story and this beer can floating on the river which is so much is seeing what has been already put inside. So if I write a scene, and I know there's something interesting in there, and then part of my job is to look around and see what I've already put in there without thinking. And now to have a little more conscious engagement of saying like, well, why are they outside? Or what else, what what about this park that I kind of intuitively placed them in? What else is in the park? And it can be so exciting to then realize, ah, you know, here's something else going on, or I'm very much about following where the language is interesting. So, for example, if I have a scene and it's working well and they're in the park and then a volleyball, there's a volleyball game and all the writing flattens out and gets very dull around the volleyball game, then I'll cut the whole volleyball game and then see what else is there in that gap. And I think that, like I'm working on a scene just this morning where I feel like half of it is working and half of it isn't. And I think what I'll be doing Monday when I sit down is starting to really clear out the parts that irritate me. George Saunders talks about Mm -hmm. like the sort of negative to positive scale on your forehead and you want to get it to the Mm -hmm. positive side. And like, I can feel the sentence Mm -hmm. where I start going like, "Ugh, this is horrible. I'm a terrible writer. And like, all I need to do is clear that sentence and my (laughs) self-esteem goes up again. (laughs) Like it really is can be sentence by sentence based. So to clear out these, you know, shit sentences and then feel kind of empowered to... To try out different things that are present in the scene and to notice what is already in place. That feels like kind of exciting and really like a good working day.
0: I have this sense that the music of the language is something that is very deeply meaningful to you. And, and you know, again, reading little bits and pieces, you talk about creating movements and, and the echo to a musical structure is interesting to me. In fact, I think you talk about Goodnight Moon as a kind of sonata structure, right? Totally. Yeah, and just in, in this reshaping, revision moment, whatever we planned on calling it, I have this impression that you're listening to the music of it as well, of the language and what you're doing. Yeah,
1: and maybe that almost more than anything, that you can feel pacing as a kind of rhythm that relates to music. And I mean, with all art, I feel like like Baldwin and Sonny's Blues talks about this roar this giving shape the musician is giving shape to the roar and the in the void getting the preposition wrong. the roar beneath the void that's coming up and putting shape on it through the instrument and he's talking about music but he's also talking about writing because he's a writer so he can't not be also thinking about this sort of beautiful chaos that we put shape to when we make anything and so in music I feel like it's really clear, obviously, that it's not verbal. But strangely, I feel like with writing, that roar is also a nonverbal place and it's being sort of shaped and made by language. And so the musicality, the emotional current beneath is the thing that I'm tracking more than anything. So I want the pacing of the emotion to land and I want just the pacing of the, the readability to land because the more readable it is, the more I can sort of lure my reader along, hoping that I will then, you know, hit them with something emotional that they didn't expect and that I'm not expecting either, but that I can sort of feel intuitively that there's some kind of movement, like you say. So yes, I think much more so than anything crafting about like language. And in fact, when I feel like I get too in my head and I'm thinking too much about like an adverb or whatever, then I know I've kind of risen too high into, you know, like, and this is reminding Mm. me because I think I'm doing this right now with something where it's like, I'm, I have, I have left that deeper strata and, and I need to go back down there because the work will just get better. The language problems clear themselves up. So much of writing issues clear up when the writing I think is not in that thinky space and drops down to that, you know, whatever that other space is—more intuitive, more uncertain, more unconscious—roar in the voice. You know, like whatever, whatever terminology yeah, you want to yeah. place on it—it's it's below the language, and is far more useful to me. Yeah,
0: and I relate to that so much as a theater director too, because in a way, I mean, you could say that uh, you know, you, if you're working with a pre-existing text, if you're working with a script, right? That, and nonetheless, you're you're shaping it into something very different, right? you're a kind of reviser and or adaptation of something as somebody who, you know, I talk about Charlie Kaufman's adaptation, right. I mean there's this wonderful kind of engagement with with the material itself that is as much a process of entering uncertainty and going through the making process to discover than staring at a blank page.
1: Completely and that they're right. There's a different, I like that parallel that in theater, when there's a script, in music, when the musician is playing, the the, what the composer has created is a bit like revision it's just that in the writer you're playing both roles right you're revising the thing that you made and in the theater piece you're taking Ibsen and you're you know like how am I going to go back in here and make this feel live and fresh and immediate and that is a kind of revision process of its own Mm -hmm.
0: So let's talk about your most recent amazing novel, The Butterfly Lampshade, which I love. Oh,
1: thank you. I'm so glad.
0: And maybe just to begin by inviting you to talk about the genesis of the book and maybe how it took shape a little bit.
1: Well, I'll try to relate it because I think it does relate in that I was writing it for just little 10-minute spurts for a while when I had these little babies and I didn't have much writing time. And so there were... I was just exploring. And in some ways it was nice to have it be 10 minutes because I hate the exploring phase, but I was drawn to the words aunt and uncle, and I wasn't drawn to mother and father. And so I, for a long time, like a year or two, I had a character who was living with her aunt and uncle. And I thought that her parents had died and I had a whole like plot development and then discovered that it was something different and that it really was about a shift in a a transitional moment for this character when she has been raised for part of her childhood by a very loving mother who has psychotic episodes and has one that's bad enough that she can't take care of her anymore and goes to live with her aunt and uncle. And so there's, and then it was just a way for me to think about all these different realms. I, I feel currently sort of obsessed with the word realm and the, the, different realms we live in, I mean, we're talking about realms, right? We're talking about the uncertain realm and the mechanical realm and all these things, but that for Francie, the main character, there's a kind of living in between of one world where her mother has some difficulty telling reality and fantasy apart for certain moments in her life, not always, but sometimes. Her own fears about what's real and not real within herself. And then these kind of uncanny incidences that actually are breaches in reality that don't feel like they can be fully explained and how those seem to pop up at moments in her life when she was kind of in an in-between state. That's sort of the place where art often lives, right? Is that when things are sort of more settled, there's less to say. And when things are kind of in that state of the Unknown for the character, too. Like, there's something to explore and think about. So, it was kind of an exercise, and then her really thinking about a transition point in her life, like really, really deeply trying to remember and consider it in a very strange way. And that's sort of the what's the meaning of that for her as kind of the project of the book.
0: Yeah. And, you know, for me, strikingly, the creativity of wrestling with transition as a kind of material of her yes. life, right? Dangerous, precarious painful, mysterious, fertile, all those things, right? And there she goes right into that. And there's a kind of making that happens for her too, in her telling, in her reflecting, in her yeah engagement with that moment of transition.
1: Yeah, that's so nice to hear. Because in some ways too, that was where my interest was. And that's where the pages were coming out. But I had some concerns like, is this sort of material enough like we have a lot of memory a sort of dark pull from the past but that was the material that was driving the book i could clearly feel it to be yeah. so a yeah. lot there was a lot of sort of trust in letting that flow
0: you know here's another person to put in our little hall of fame of phillips and 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 winnicott And that's uh, Rudolf Dreikers. And I, I thought about this book when I read Lemon Cake, and I thought about it again with The Butterfly Lampshade. And I remember when my kids were little, I read this book called Children, the Challenge. It's, I don't know, I think it was written in the 50s or something like that. But I remember distinctly one thing that he says that has always stayed with me, and that is children are wonderful observers, but they're bad interpreters.
1: Right, And uh, that was
0: so strongly with me as I read The Butterfly Lime
1: I mean, that should be my epigraph, right? That's just, <laughs> it's so perfect. But it is, in a way, the epigraph, because in the book, there's a quote by Zamborska, the Polish poet, and it's, I'm still asleep, but meanwhile, the facts are taking place. And this idea of like, these things are forming in childhood that we don't know the facts. We don't know what they mean. And we're perhaps, a, I mean, asleep but mm. also very aware um, I think so often about how childhood is right there's no interpretation and there's also very little language to put to experience you're just flowing and
0: yet energy. you see it you feel it you observe it and right? so deeply deep, deep, deep. yes
1: deep. yeah so acutely yeah. so formatively of course I love that quote thank you for that
0: so, I'm trying to also draw out the journey of the maker, in this case, Francie, and the parallel journey of, and you, and the reader, all in this kind of great creative parallel play <laughs> that's going on, right? And this kind of make to know process for Francie herself as she engages with this moment of transition. But there's also something about the 2D objects of the butterfly the beetle and the rose, mm-hmm. transitioning into the 3D world that it seems to me inherently creative in a kind of make-to-no-way as well. Because it's she's the agent in a really interesting yeah.
1: way. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think there is something about that. There are these objects that kind of fall off deadly from things like a butterfly and a lampshade that shows up dead in a water glass and a beetle that uh, is dead somewhere else but that they are tangible objects and that there's there is a moment in the book that felt really important to me without fully understanding it and that was also part of the engagement with these objects was to make them as real as possible but not to really pursue the meaning of them because I don't want them to kind of close into anything one to one but that she's holding it and it just its tangibility is is it just can't be denied. Like it just is a thing now. Like something has been made into a thing and once it's a thing, it has achieved thingitude, you know, like it's just now in the world. Yeah, yeah. There's something about the act of making something that's like that too, where something gets made and it cannot be unmade when the writer sees the surprise that can't right be there. unsurprised anymore, right? There was right, one point, right. my husband teaches meditation and we were talking about thoughts and, and I was like, but what are, you know, like what is insight? Because is insight a thought? And he said something like, no, like an insight is an experience. Like you feel it in your body and you know it and you have language around it, but it's it's much bigger than a thought. And it was really, it was really helpful. Like I fell on to his statement on yeah. that. Because it feels like yeah. is there some way that is there some movement? What is insight? What is surprise? What is recognition? And aren't these things sort of they're bigger than language because once we know them, they're part of us.
0: Well, It's cool. Yeah, very. I'm going to digress from the, the trajectory I was on for just a moment because I'm I'm sort of dying to ask you this question, yeah. but do, do you reflect that Francie... That what happened with her as these various different objects come into a three-dimensional world, transition into it, do, do you think about it as her way of staying connected with her mother? Hmm.
1: It's interesting. I mean, I very purposefully wanted there to be a few other witnesses of these objects so that we would know it wasn't fully only in her mind. Right. Because otherwise I felt like it could be just a sign to hallucinations on her part and I wanted them to be real real objects, real holdable things, that her cousin mm-hmm. can have mm-hmm. the rose and is keeping the rose and actually cares about the rose more than Francie does. But I do think, I guess if I were to really pin myself down on it, I feel like there are things we can't explain and there are. there's a wonderful moment. I mean, God, this feels so... I don't know how to capture it precisely. But there's a wonderful moment in Ben Lerner's book, 1004, where um, the character is talking to a student and the student's schizophrenic and the student feels like his, everything is bugged around him and is dealing with all this paranoia and is suffering a lot. And the character tells the student that there's no one watching him and that there's nothing to worry about and then reflects about how he's plenty worried, like he's not gonna say this to the student, but he reflects on how there's truth and what the student is also pointing out. And so, I suppose there's some way of wanting a strangeness in the world to also reflect things we don't understand about the mind. But I don't, when I say that, I don't want in any way romanticize Francie's mother and what she deals with because I think psychosis is horrible. Yeah. You know, I think it's a horrible yeah. thing to suffer yeah. through. But I also think. The way we treat it matters too. And that, you know, I've had some interest in looking at different cultures and the way that the mentally ill are approached as much more lovingly and with much less stigma and how that tends to help people have less punishing hallucinations. Like it's just, it's really, it's a whole, there's a whole thing to talk about there. Got it. But I suppose yeah. just wanting the world itself to not be knowable too is part of the reason
0: yeah. And I guess just as a reader of the book, I was wrestling with the extent to which, again, I found the transitioning of these objects and her discovery of them and her surprises of them to be such a kind of deeply creative act itself. And so that she could share that creativity with others who witnessed it was that much more powerful to I me. I love that. You know? Right. Right. But there she was wrestling with this deep connection with, with her mother Nonetheless, you're
1: right. And you know,
0: and that her creative engagement was all part of that. Yes, No,
1: but I think I love that you say that because it does feel like those things did happen because she was there. I mean, they may happen for someone else in some other way. And that's another story. But absolutely, they were things that she could share with like that when Vicky's holding the rose and keeping it that that is a dignifying of exactly what you're saying.
0: Right. And then I, I love your emphasis on the things that aren't explained, or because I, you know when you when you read about your work, the the I, and I don't know if you like this word supernatural comes into it, and it's just not my experience really. I like unexplained better. Yeah, actually. I do too. I do too. Yeah. I think of like yeah. UFOs are
1: supernatural. Like that feels it feels like a very specific <laughs> yeah, <right>. tone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but there's a very deliberate reason, need, purpose for the unexplained in your work. I think. Right? Yeah. That we don't become obsessed with meaning but we get back to that kind of deeper and you talk about this a lot i know but we come back to a connection with something else a certain level of honesty or discovery in and, and not get preoccupied with the with with the meaning piece so yeah I and mean,
1: that's so nice to hear because it really it's it's so important to me and it, i mean ultimately it, it is a prioritizing exactly of that space of uncertainty Versus a space of knowing,
0: and I was wondering if that whole kind of sense of that we become preoccupied with meaning is in a way similar to how creatives get stuck in their preoccupation with vision. It becomes this kind of narrowing in an interesting way, right? Whereas, like, meaning grounds it immediately, leaving it unexplained. Feeling it opens up the possibility for uncertainty and exploration. Yeah. Vision can narrow if it necessarily has to dictate from the beginning. Not all the time. I mean, people work in different ways. I don't mean to be rigid about this, but so much of what I learned from this experience of writing this book was that that the preoccupation with the vision is a very limited way to talk about the process. And it obscures that that uncertain world, I think, that we're talking about and that we find so, so fertile and alive.
1: Yeah, I think that's so right. And that there's something maybe basically like humbling in a very basic way about feeling like you can sit down without a sense of vision. You don't have to consider yourself visionary (laughs) in any way. And there's still Mm. this vast amount of material to tap into. And that it's, yeah, that it's much more about just figuring out these sort of more infrastructure type of questions about, well, how are you gonna get work done? And where are you gonna do it? And how, you know, these things that seem kind of dull, but actually create the space to wrangle with this much murkier area.
0: Yeah. And I guess the other thing, too, about the preoccupation with meaning is just from the reader's point of view, too. If that's your purpose, then you're not going through your own kind of creative make-to-know process as a reader, really, right? Yeah.
1: No, exactly. And can you not know and live with something and sort of live into a meaning, too? Like, I've found that with with things that I've read and loved and seen and all of that, where I feel, you know, how many times have I seen waiting for Godot? And I, you know, I love it. I barely understand it, you know, but each time a little bit more, but there's something that I love. And I trust that love is guiding me back to the seats to sit closer each time and listen more carefully. And it's never going to be a sentence. You know, the thing that I arrive at each time is going to be each time a new layer of understanding and a new capacity to listen. You know, I can feel like a maturing in myself, like, oh, I'm listening better this round, <laughs> you know, I'm catching more. And right. and that's, like, that's sort of how I wanna engage with art, like, that's that's how it's helping me. Like, I there's definitely stuff mm-hmm. that's more like on the surface helping me think through something, but I wanna be helped on a really deep level. I wanna sort of walk with that maker, that artist, that whoever and carry it with me and then walk into the meaning later.
0: to come back to something else so delightful that I, I read in preparation for this interview was in your introduction to plowshares that you guest edited this past nice year, that, you you, found that. you talk about your students drawing sea creatures on a chalkboard. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great way to end this interview. If we started with goodnight moon, I thought maybe we ought to end with sea creatures on the chalkboard. Can of you talk course. About
1: that? I love that you found that yeah. and happily. And it's fun to tell it to grad students who are actually very willing to draw sea creatures on the blackboard. But this came out of thinking about what did it mean when work is called organic, which is very much related to everything that we've been talking about. You know, what, if it grows naturally, what does that mean? And so they draw these sea creatures on the chalkboard and we leave them there. And then we start talking about class and then maybe, you know, what are we going to be doing in class? And then at some point we're talking about what shape a story can be and There's a quote from Dante's Inferno, and it translates roughly to God has had a grandchild in your art and the meaning behind it was that at the time there were some beliefs that it was God gave birth to nature, nature gave birth to art. And so art is God's grandchild. And it helped me think about this idea of what is organic because if art is in some way supposed to grow like nature grows, and then we look at the sea creatures And also on the board would be somewhere the like oval triangle of a fish that everyone draws as a fish. But as we know, fish take many, many, many shapes. And that's really not even the most common shape. There probably isn't a most common shape of fish. And then to think about if we're trying to make stories, we just want them to hold organically and truly to the shape that they are. And let's look at an eel and let's look at this jellyfish and let's look at this weird one with the like the angler fish has like a little string in front and I don't know what a big jaw and toothiness and and in that can we give ourselves permission to try to listen to the shape of the thing and shape it according to its own um, natural movement and so when we're workshopping then we try to kind of keep that in mind and look at the work a little differently and not try to say, you know, this needs to have a climactic moment in the middle and it needs to have the denouement at this point, like none yeah, of that, to really right. be like, what is what is this thing that you've made and how can we help you make it better?
0: It's lovely and gets us really back to the kind of fundamental essence of improvisation right there, all of us, no matter what our field, our genre, our way of making, we are improvising, our living, yeah. <laughs> we are improvising.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And, and, you know, allowing, the thing that you're making to have its kind of power to assert its shape, and for you as the engager to be able to listen to that and know what it reveals, which is what is interests me so much and what I was trying to write
1: about. Yeah, well, I'm so excited for this book, Lauren. I can't wait to have it and to use it in my own teaching too, because I think it really does show across so many fields how the same question comes up again and again.
0: Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Changelab.